0: General Election 2019, separating fact from fiction. You think you're here for a debate, but actually on my way here, I was thinking of it more as a pilot for a new Netflix series, The Truth Tellers. You can imagine it's Britain, 2019. The country is post-truth. The major parties have fallen into the hands of post-truth politicians who reject reality-based Politics. Their domination of the airwaves is almost complete, except for a committed band of independent think tankers <laughs> battling for truth, reason, fact-based decision making. Or maybe it wouldn't get um, great funding from Netflix. But I do think if you had such a series, you would have the leading characters would be. Uh, Placed here, We would have these three uh, think tanks. The Institute for Fiscal Studies, led by Paul Johnson, the Institute for Government, led by Bromwyn Maddox, and the UK in a Changing Europe, led by Alain Menon, uh, have played a massive role already in the truth-telling battle. You're going to get lots of truth-telling this evening. Uh, also, uh, questions from the audience here, but also, importantly, from... Uh, from online. I have them all here. There's lots of questions that we already have. Most of them are worth about half an hour's discussion at least, uh, so I apologise in advance for people um, if their questions aren't fully answered, like, is there an answer to the social care crisis? Um, But uh, the really exciting news is that this is being broadcast online and will also be on the Stephanomics podcast, which is available wherever you get your podcast. Paul, I think we will have to deal with economics first. You have been battling on the airwaves and everywhere else the last few weeks. People not paying a lot of attention would have heard that they're all spending a lot of money, um, but also that there was a really major philosophical argument at the heart of those manifestos. Um, If you step back, could could we put look at, uh, to briefly look at where we are in terms of what the parties are suggesting, but I think more importantly put it into some context.
1: Yeah, um, well we've certainly got big differences between uh, between the parties. I think it's worth um, starting actually thinking about the what's in the manifestos just by saying uh, that everything about the economics and public finances of the next five years is incredibly uncertain. Not that you'd know it from looking at the manifestos because... Uh, there are some you know, lots of specifics um, in there, or at least specifics in some of them, uh, but not much acknowledgement of the fact that uh, we don't have much idea actually what's going to happen over the next five years. Whoever wins uh, and whatever happens with Brexit, there's lots of uncertainty around what impact that's going to have on the economy and the public finances. Don't forget, as we often do, there's a big wide world out there which, um, economically speaking, was doing pretty well until a couple of years until. <laughs> earlier this year, and we lost out on a lot of that growth, uh, but it's slowing down. Um, we've got trade wars uh, between China and the US, and even if you ignore all of that, as the OBR are always um, very cheerfully reminding us, um, uh, we get a recession about once every 10 years, and it's about 10 years since the last recession. Uh, so whether we get another one over the next parliament uh, remains to be seen, and if we do, of course, uh, quite a lot of stuff might get blown well off course. What, what are the Conservatives saying? Well, uh, in their manifesto, remarkably little, I think it's fair to say, on public finances, spending and tax. I think we said, and I think we'd certainly stand by that, that if this had been a one-year budget, we'd have described it as pretty modest. As a, uh, as, as a programme for government, it's really, for five years, there's really remarkably little in it. I mean, to a first approximation, uh, no additional uh, current um, spending. And the biggest tax uh, announcement is that there'll be no change uh, to income tax, national insurance, and VAT rates. Um, there is uh, room for some fairly significant additional investment spending there. Uh, that's all a little unfair to the Conservatives because there is some significant spending increases coming down the line um, as a result of the spending review and the extra money given to the NHS last year so spending in a couple of years time will be about 30 billion more than it is today so in that sense austerity um, at an end uh, uh, no further cuts planned um, and public service spending a little bit higher by 2023 than it was in 2010 not that that's an awful lot to write home about after more than a decade Uh, though public service spending outside of health will still be way down on where it was in 2010 15 percent lower Uh, by 2023 on those plans than it was in 2010. Uh, So some real increases, but in a sense, those are all pre-announced, and there's very little additional um, in the manifesto. Uh, You take all of that at face value, and you get the (coughs) deficit, the debt, um, pretty steady uh, roughly where they are, which is pretty much what you might think of most of the Conservative manifesto bar Brexit, which is steady as she goes, um, not much change, of course, uh, risks around what would happen as a result of no deal, um, if that's where we end up in a year's time. Uh, so I think, you know, lots of questions there, would we really have a government doing as little as is in that manifesto, I think the answer is probably not. So what would actually happen, uh, I think lots, uh, a lot of unknowns. Labour couldn't be much more different. Um, uh, The scale of the tax and spending plans, uh, it's hard to overstate. They really are extremely big. Um, So just to throw some big numbers at you, um, current spending uh, increases 80 billion a year. This is on top of the 30-odd billion already uh, coming through. Uh, Investment spending, an an extra 55 billion a year on average over a parliament. That's doubling government investment spending tax increases of 80 billion a year, um, uh, another 60 billion uh, magicked out somewhere uh, to pay the so-called WASPy women, those who um, who saw their uh, pension ages increase over the last decade. So by all uh, British historical standards, uh, astonishing and unprecedented levels of tax and spending increases. It's important to put that in international context though, Uh, If you take the overall spending plans, they would take us from relatively low by Western European standards to rather more average by Western European standards as uh, tax and spending as a fraction of national income. So, uh, unprecedented in UK history, but not unprecedented uh, in terms of international comparison. Um, On on those spending uh, plans, um, where's all that money going? I think the answer, in a sense, is it's largely going to a reimagined and more universal welfare state. So free higher education, free childcare, free personal care, free prescriptions, um, and free quite a lot of free TV licenses, free quite a lot of other things. This is actually not a manifesto focused on the poor. There's very little in there, actually, to undo the welfare cuts we've had over the last... Uh, ten years, probably less than a quarter of the welfare cuts um, to be reversed, and of course the main beneficiaries of the uh, things that I just uh, mentioned are those who currently uh, are high-earning graduates, are uh, are are, are el- older people who actually have uh, some assets, uh, and so on. So this is this is, a, I think, a vision of a much more universalist uh, welfare state than one uh, that we have um, on the tax uh, on the tax side. Uh, supposedly uh, 80 billion of tax rises. You'll have heard the, uh, the mantra that this is all uh, on, the, uh, on the top 5% uh, and on companies. Of course, that's not true. Um, uh, you can't raise 80 billion pounds in tax and only affect 5% of people. Uh, two reasons for that. First, um, there are specific and actually very sensible tax proposals in there which would directly affect many more than the top 5%, so really uh, way overdue changes to the taxation of dividends and capital gains, uh, which affects many uh, people, uh, self-employed people, owners of small businesses who are not necessarily terribly well off, getting rid of the um, rather silly marriage tax allowance, uh, which only affects people on relatively uh, modest income. So that's one reason it's uh, gonna affect more than the top 5%, the other reason, of course, is if, as Labour say they want to do, they want to almost double Uh, the burden of corporation tax, that in the end gets paid by people, uh, shareholders, in other words, savers, workers or consumers, no one else can uh, pay that. And uh, I think the the, the last thing to say about the tax plans is that whilst you can raise significant amounts in the way that they describe, I'm extremely skeptical of the idea that you could raise a full 80 billion a year in the way they describe That's A a more than 10% increase in the amount of tax uh, that we raise at the moment. No other, I talked about other countries which have tax and spending um, as a fraction of national income close to the level Labour, Labour are proposing. Not one of them uh, does it in the way that Labour are proposing on the tax side. They all um, have broader based um, taxes. But actually I think you know, despite those big differences, Uh, between Labour and Conservatives on their tax and spending plans. I think there's one thing in common, which is actually we don't really know what they would do, uh, because it's not, I think, plausible that within a single Parliament, Labour could do all of the things that I've just described and uh, nationalise water, power, broadband, uh, Royal Mail, and bring in their inclusive uh, share uh, ownership scheme and, as I say, double, uh, double investment spending and all of the other things... Uh, that they're describing. So there's a list, an aspiration uh, which might be achievable um, over a couple of decades but certainly isn't achievable over a couple of years. So I think actually with both Labour and Conservatives, one's left with a lot of uncertainty about what actually uh, they would do um, in their time in in government. Where would would Labour's plans leave us in terms of um, the public finances? Well, um, on their own on, on their own figures, um, borrowing would uh, something like double um, uh, to about four percent of national income. The debt, would, national debt, would be rising, and that's all assuming uh, that the economy continue to grow as currently uh, currently projected. But I think the big, I mean, the big story here is a huge increase in the role, scope, and scale of the state, not just in terms of its tax and spending, but in terms of nationalisation, which would take more than five percent of private business assets into the, uh, into the public sector. A minimum wage, actually, uh, which would directly set from Whitehall the wages of a quarter of private sector workers so high as it set uh, relative to the sorts of wages that people earn. So a dramatically different view of the role of the state compared with, uh, compared with, the, uh, compared with the conservatives uh, and a big change from where we've um, ever been. Um, Finally, I'll say something about the Liberal Liberal Democrats, um, too too often perhaps forgotten in these uh, discussions. The Liberal Democrat Manifesto, as is often the case, sits somewhere between uh, Labour and Conservatives. I think had the Liberal Democrats come forward with that manifesto in 2015, we'd be describing it as a really quite radical uh, set of changes, of course set, set against where Labour is, it looks less, uh, it looks less dramatic today, uh, but they are looking at, on top of, as I say, the 30 billion of additional spending already baked in, an, addi- an addi- additional 30 odd billion of spending. Um, beyond their Brexit policy, their um, uh, their, their their biggest, uh, their biggest and most dramatic uh, policy is on childcare, uh, where they're looking at uh, uh, pretty much quintupling um, spending on free childcare for. Um, two, three, and four-year-olds, and indeed for those over the age of nine months uh, where their parents are working. This will be creating a whole, you know, a, a full new part of the universal um, welfare, uh, welfare state. Uh, they've got uh, also some significant tax rises, of which, again, the most uh, uh, obvious or high-profile is a broad-based penny on all rates of income tax, which you guarantee really would raise you the $8 billion, uh, that they say. Uh, that they say it would, it would raise you. Interestingly, the Lib Dems are the most fiscally conservative um, of the three parties. If you look at everything that they've promised, they would have lower levels of uh, debt and deficit than the two main parties to the extent, as I say, that one can take uh, what they say seriously. But let me, um, le- le- let me end by returning to what I said at the beginning, uh, which is that there is a huge amount of uncertainty Uh, around all of this. There's a huge amount of uncertainty about where the economy would be and therefore what the public finances would do. Um, But particularly, I think there's an enormous amount of uncertainty about what either Labour or Conservative would do in in, in power. Because I think on the one hand, uh, there isn't a Parliament's worth um, of, uh, of, of, of action in the Conservative manifesto and there's far too much in the Labour manifesto for it to be remotely plausible that they could do all of that in one parliament, so I think the real uh, the real question for both is what would your actual priorities be um, if you were uh, if you did have the, the the reins of government.
0: Thank you, thank you, Paul. I'm going to follow up on one thing um, because I think it might be helpful to people. You know, for those of us who've listened to you over the last 10 years or so, um, every budget, certainly in the austerity years, which are now over, apparently. Um, <laughs> You, would be, you were always using a certain amount of hyperbole about this is the greatest cuts to public services since when uh, we are now back to the level of the size of the state. I just wonder when you talk about unprecedented increases in spending and taxes, that's certainly true for a single year, if, although you cast out on whether they could ever do it in a year. Um, but is our perspective being a little skewed by the fact by the sheer extent of the cuts we've seen over the previous 10 years, or the, the squeeze, at least in certain parts of government? Or is this genuinely, if you were looking from a, a 50-year perspective, you would still say that this was an extraordinary change?
1: Well, if implemented over a parliament, it will be significantly bigger, for example, than the increases over the most um, you know, generous five years of the last Labour government, and they were really quite big uh-huh. spending increases um, at that time. So, yes, I think you... And, 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 and if you look at... Uh, where it would take tax and spending as a fraction of national income, it would take them to levels we've genuinely not seen on a sustained basis, uh, certainly in, in peacetime. Now, that's partly because, and I think this is an important sort of bit of background, that the state spending today as a fraction of national income, despite the hyperbole about what's, what we've seen in terms of austerity, is no lower than it was in 2007 after 10 years of, Labour government, the state takes the same fraction, actually takes takes more, higher fraction of national income in tax, and spends the same fraction of national income as it did in 2007. How can that possibly be, uh, when uh, it's also the case that we've had um, you know, significant real spending cuts <coughs> since 2010? Well, uh, three things uh, create that. One is that we've had terrible growth, which means that uh, you know there's less, much less to go around than we might reasonably. Um, we might reasonably have expected. Secondly, uh, obviously the state grew very dramatically as a fraction of national income between 2008 and 2010 because national income fell so much and um, spending rose to, to some extent offset the effects of the uh, recession, but probably most importantly in the long run, because spending on health is something like 25% higher uh, than it was a-, a decade ago, despite the fact the health service feels like it you know, doesn't feel like it's got lots uh, of money. All of that additional money for health uh, has meant less money uh, for everything uh, everything else. So the shape of the state has changed very substantially over that period. I think one of the most dramatic facts is that if you look at public service spending, uh, back in the year 2000, about a quarter of public service spending, uh, current public service spending went on health. It's now about 40%. And that is a big change over time. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why everything else has felt so squeezed.
0: And I remember, people from IFS showing the, the exponential line, showing exactly that right at the beginning of the process, saying we, when we get to the end, it'll be 40%, and of course you were. some predictions turn out to be right. <laughs> um, Bronwyn Maddox, we, your, uh, the Institute has done some fantastic stuff almost daily on uh, the public services piece um, of election debates I mean it does strike me that although we talk about we've talked about the sort of big macro numbers actually what's striking about this election is not the not the, the macro debates that we've tended to focus on in the past but actually real disagreements about the microeconomic level about the, the basic
2: principles for policy absolutely let me say two general things um, about this election and then dig into some of the detail and pick up on these points that Stephanie and Paul are raising The first is that this is a real battle of ideas. We've had something of a consensus for 30, 40 years about how to run government, no matter whether Labour or Conservatives um, have been leading that government. And and it's about driving for more efficient use of public spending, uh, bringing in some of the techniques from the private sector, like targets and a certain sort of managerialism. But you've you've had a broad consensus there, and and the government was there to work with uh, the private sector uh, and the boundary might go back and, and forth a bit, but the techniques for doing all that would would, would, would get better uh, and better. And this is, um, and certainly the challenge from Labour in this election is something very different. Uh, they don't see it that way. And they have gone to great lengths, great length, in their manifesto to spell out just how differently they, they, they see things. And while we can talk about the individual policies, I think we have to capture as well that this is really a different world view about how government works, as well as the size of the state. And the second thing, picking up on, on a point that Paul made, is that they have promised too much. Um, the Conservatives have promised too much with Brexit. Uh, their big idea, if you like, their, their manifesto is not entirely devoid of things because that sits there right in the middle, um, and yet what they've promised in terms of um, getting that done and the timescale on which they've promised to do it and the fact that their objective depends on the European Union, not just on the European Union, but on the uh, unanimous approval by 27 different European countries makes that extraordinarily hard. That's them. (coughs) Labour has, to its credit, uh, spent obviously a great deal of time and many, many pages in spelling out in detail what it intends to do. Um, the sheer volume of this is hard to capture. Well, Paul and um, many others have captured the amount in, uh, with a pound sign in front, and that is pretty eye-watering for a start, uh, an extra $83 billion of, uh, uh, by, within uh, by, by 2023 of public spending before getting on to the Osby Women Pension Pledge. But um, the sheer bureaucratic volume of what they tr- try to do, I think we, we need to remind ourselves of it. Um, take them years possibly simply to create the three new departments they want, things that are in there almost as an aside like abolish universal credit, to be enormously <coughs> disruptive and take a couple a uh, couple of governments to do, and I'm not sure they'd be well advised to do it. And that's before getting onto to some of the big planks of what they want to do like renationalization and so on. So you know they've got enough in there for many, many governments and this question of prioritization. I think would be particularly forceful direct, directed at them. Let me just pick up on some of the details uh, on public services and thank you, you know we've done a lot of, of, of work on, uh, on this uh, and after the spending squeeze started in, in 2010 we, we found that there was a lot of improvement in efficiency in many public services and then standards started to drop even in some of those such as education that were comparatively shielded in the beginning um, you have seen a drop in performance Uh, by some definition of that. Um, The question is what these manifestos mean now. The conservative one would broadly, in our view, keep pace with demand, it would would maintain things. Uh, It doesn't offer enough money for improving uh, standards. Uh, Labour does, but just um, absolutely touching on the point that that Stephanie rightly raised, uh, where does all this go? This is an old problem, you've had um, demand for health and the cost of health growing at two or three times um, the, the rate of GDP, even when GDP was in a sprightlier form than it's been at the at the moment. And something had to give, as Paul's been describing. It's uh, uh, in recent years been other public services, um, uh, and and uh, but the, you know the question is where is this going to go if we're not going to become a health service with a small country attached, um, and something of the same painful. Uh, truth is visible at local government where the commitment to fund social care uh, is really squeezing out other local services. And you've got a nasty democratic problem building up there that people think they pay their local taxes for things like libraries and parks that everyone enjoys. And in fact, more and more of that money is going to things that only part of the borough or uh, council area will enjoy, which, which is social care. Um, and th- and you know, that, that, that that is building up. On ownership, which matters a great deal to Labour. We can see from this manifesto, Labour has really set out, it believes that it matters uh, who (coughs) owns things, it matters if the government uh, owns things, it matters if workers own things, and it is clearly after a transfer of power um, uh, through this uh, ownership. I think it has yet to make the case (coughs) that government ownership of many of the problematic things it has alighted on, for example, the railways, would be dramatically would lead to a dramatic improvement. Um, the, these these are problematic for uh, many reasons, um, but they were under government ownership before. Uh, it is absolutely true that in some cases um, privatisation has not helped, but the fault I think um, has. It lies more easily, it's more easy to identify the faults with a regulatory regime and that would be an easier starting point than simply pulling the whole lot into government hands again and there is not in many cases capacity to manage these things in the way that there was in the past in government Uh, and to say that all these problems will suddenly go away. They won't. They will be more easily pinned at the door of ministers uh, than they are when they're in private. Ownership, and I think Labour really has to look at that. We've done a lot of work on outsourcing to the private sector, and you know, in some cases, absolutely, uh, stuff should have not not have been outsourced. Uh, probation is one example we hold up a lot. Some cases uh, it should have been, and has, has worked well and has <coughs> delivered enormous savings for the public purse. But it's it's it is a case of babies in bathwater, I think. And I would have liked to see Labour uh, express more discrimination between these things rather than the very ideologically based approach to ownership. Devolution and regions, um, I I just uh, come back recently from Northern Ireland um, and uh, we have gone to some lengths in in, in the Institute to say in different ways that Northern Ireland is often neglected, uh, the consequences of not having a government there and the implications of Brexit for it uh, uh, neglected and to me that is as sharp a problem as the noisier Scottish independent movement. I think both of those questions are going to be something that we spend a great deal of 2020 (coughs) talking about, regardless of who wins the the election and the integrity of the union overall. Um, Constitutional questions, for both parties, they've thrown in things that really are huge and messy and problematic. Uh, In Labour's case, uh, um, making the House of Lords fully elected. Um, uh, In both the Conservative and Labour cases, uh, getting rid of the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act without really thinking through what these mean. Even just that, the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act has caused all end of sort of comedy and problems this uh, this this autumn. And there are three kinds of problems. paralysis, Every, Everything but a fixed-term parliament, in fact. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, exactly. But, uh, you know, paralysis, uh, no one uh, quite knows what a, uh, uh, a no-confidence motion is, and there is this question of the messy... 14 days, if there were such a vote of no confidence, what does a government have to do to claim it's an alternative government and get rid of the incumbent and so on? And does the Queen come into it all? Um, All right, but you could address those things. Parliament could indeed legislate on these things. There's a real question of whether you actually could abolish it because uh, the prerogative powers of the Queen that it replaced have been swept away. It's not a simple thing. And yet these really quite big constitutional questions have been slipped in. And they're not trivial. They would have enormous impact, as we've seen the very quickly drafted Fixed-Term Parliaments Act itself did. So I think that's where the the, the parties in writing these things really ran out of uh, time and thought. But um, we would all come to to rue all that. Uh, Alan's going to talk much more about Brexit, but I would just say the Conservative deadline of the end of the year is so tight. Uh, The EU preparing... Uh, so uh, thoroughly already for those negotiations, and you only have to scatter in a few words like fish and Gibraltar to make the whole thing <laughs> very <laughs> complicated and difficult for any government, UK government to accept that there is a real possibility, if we have a Conservative government here, that uh, we have another No Deal cliffhanger. Though the room for compromise that both sides showed might lead us to hope that that could be brushed away. Uh, on the Labour side, um, this timetable of Six months to get it all done, including a second referendum, I honestly think is, is, is for the birds. It, it just, um, uh, they would have to be bringing in legislation right away for a second referendum without even knowing what the question was because they wouldn't have done the deal yet. And my suspicion is that even though Labour professes it wants a much closer relationship with the EU than, than Boris Johnson's deal, it would find all kinds of ways uh, in EU practice and in the detail of EU rules, not just the presumption of encouraging competition on the railways, <coughs> little details like that, find the EU actually more uncomfortable um, and might want a more distant relationship than it's saying, and all that would slow it down. So I think they've been unrealistic, both of them, in different ways on this. And i just come back to that point of the battle of ideas. I mean, this, the, these are two very, very different uh, expressions of how government works and the role that government plays in fixing things, and by extension, the uh, role of freedom for individuals or businesses. Uh, it is a battle about liberalism, in, in, in a way, and we can express some of this in numbers, um, the sheer amounts of money going to one thing or other, but it's bigger than that. Um, and so even though this has been called the Brexit election and the public services and wall of money election, I think it really is a battle of ideas and one that we can only really assess in retrospect, but we shouldn't dismiss um, for all its apparent uh, insubstantiality at the moment. It's a problem. Want
0: to, I'm gonna come back very briefly on that, because I do think it's interesting, it hasn't come out of nowhere, this very different approach. Um, and of course many people would say it's directly a throwback to, to a previous time and previous uh, Labour Party policies. but that, you know, how much do you think it's a reflection uh, on the, f- the failures of that sort of managerial approach that was in ascendance for all these years, that throughout this period, not just recently, throughout this period, quite significant majorities of the public have been in favour of, nas- of na- re quite large chunks of the privatised industries? Um, and certainly younger people also have a perception that, Things have, that, that managerial model certainly didn't change enough in response to the financial crisis. I was struck, there was a very good uh, Business Week piece about trying to explain to the Business Week audience and the Bloomberg audience this week how Corbyn had sort of got so far, and particularly about um, you know, how radical he was, but also how particularly younger people uh, supported him. And it s- says, they not only have zero problem with his desire for an activist state, they see it as the sole remedy for a system that's still forcing average people to pay for the sins of the financial industry and in the crash. I mean, there is a bit of, you know, some of this is, is because there was a failure to change.
2: I think that's exactly right. And I think it's, it's, it's older than the financial crisis yes. itself. Um, and I think some of the privatizations, you know, worked partly. Um, you can argue it's not very popular that the railways were even worse before. Uh, and carried many fewer people um, and, and that BT has, um, in, in a lumbering way, you know, improved itself uh, and so on. Uh, and I think that is right. But the regulators also, to my mind, have struggled with a very difficult job, not just of price regulation, but um, uh, sometimes of, of, of content regulation in the case of, of Ofcom. They've got, they've got very, very difficult jobs, and there is not a great deal of support, rightly, in my view, for kind of unelected technocrats uh, presiding over these things that really affect people's household bills and so on. So I think a lot of the challenge is right. And when you come to the generational imbalances, um, we can have this, there will be a whole seminar just on this, which I'm sure Stephanie would be very expert on, (laughs) but what the responses to the financial crisis did in terms of uh, exacerbating the problems in the housing market and exacerbating uh, stocks of wealth. Um, for some some parts of the population, um, easily caricatured, but but there is enormous sting in that for um, the generational divide. And I think politicians have been very very slow to recognise that and to address some of the particular problems. For example, the housing uh, the, the housing market. Um, and so these things have built up. But state uh, whether well, state ownership is actually a remedy for all of these, I think, is an entirely separate argument. And one that I think Labour has has really uh, yet to make the case for, let alone to win.
0: Uh, Anna Menon, um, Bronwyn said this was supposed to be the Brexit election. It is striking <laughs> that it has not been as dominated by Brexit as we might have expected. And I guess some people would take that as an example, as a sign of these other real debates being quite important to people. I guess the other, the other reason might be that people just don't, are fed up with talking about Brexit and don't know who to believe <laughs> because as Bronwyn says, there is so much unreality uh, on both sides on this topic. What do you think?
3: Well, and, and yet at the same time, people have very strong feelings about Brexit that mean that you know, if you look at the survey evidence, far more people in the British Social Attitudes uh, poll, the uh, survey that's taken, are now very interested in politics than was ever the case before. Uh, we can expect, I think, pretty high turnout, not just because people are motivated, but because we have a new net register, so we're counting fewer dead people now, so the proportion is going to be higher,
2: <laughs> naturally. Uh, uh,
3: so, so I think people are motivated uh, by Brexit. I mean, the problem is, I think, there are, there are the prospectors, as, as, as Bronwyn hinted at this, uh, that they're being offered, uh, aren't altogether straightforward or necessarily honest. Uh, on, on the point about, and I'll, I'll come on to the manifestos in a minute, but on the points about whether or not this is a Brexit election, I suppose the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. Now, 2017 was meant to be a Brexit election, but if you dig into the numbers, then actually social class, as ever, was the primary driver of how people voted, with wrinkles. And we all know the wrinkles. You know, you had to say things you never thought you'd say, like, you know, the Tories win Stoke, or Labour win Kensington. So there was a Brexit impact, but it was quite limited. And what we don't know this time, and I'll come back to this in a minute, because it matters, is whether or not new Brexit coalitions will take shape, whether in particular the Tories come to power on the back of a Brexit coalition that might win them a majority, but might actually make it very, very hard for them to govern uh, because creating a set of economic policies for that Brexit coalition is going to be challenging, to say the least. But on the manifestos, if I start with Labour, I mean, the Labour offer is, on the surface, quite simple. We're going to go to Brussels, we're going to renegotiate the deal, we're going to come back, we're going to have a referendum, and as Bronwyn says, that'll take us six months, and then we'll move on to other things. Now, there are holes in this, I mean, not least in the fact that it's far from clear what Jeremy Corbyn is going to ask for in Brussels. There are some wonderfully ambiguous phrases in the manifesto. Joint UK-EU trade deals is one such phrase. If by joint the Labour Party mean the EU will negotiate them and we will have to apply them, then I think the EU could probably live with that. If by joint the Labour Party means we're going to get a real say over them, I suspect Brussels might turn around and say actually no. So that's one issue where there's going to be a little bit of ambiguity. And the other is on the notion of alignment with the single market. What Labour don't say is how much. So you can align with the single, you could you could claim that Mrs. May's deal involved alignment with the single market. You could equally say that Norway aligns with the single market, but between the two there is a gulf. So the scale of ambition is very, very unclear. Uh, And of course, when it comes to the political practicalities of the Labour position, there's very little escaping from the fact that even were Jeremy Corbyn to pull this trick off to go to Brussels renegotiate a deal. Uh, And there are reasons, I think, to wonder whether he'll get that far, which I'll come back to in a sec, but he will come back and then find a significant amount of his own cabinet, of his own parliamentary party, of his own party membership, and of his own electorate, will then go and campaign against what he's just done, which at a minimum is not a good look. Uh, I mean, you know, think back to 2016. It's not a good look for a prime minister to have his deal trashed by his own party. So there's, there's instability inherent in that, uh, anyway, so, you know, there, 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 are, there are issues around what, what, what Labour is offering. I, I personally think it'll be very, very hard for a minority Labour government, because that is the only sort of Labour government we're going to have, to get the necessary legislation through Parliament. Uh, my hunch is, as they try to do this and run into the choppy waters of a Lib, of a Lib Dem party, half of whose MPs will be people who left, in order that Jeremy Corbyn didn't become Prime Minister, of an SNP that has its own list of uh, demands, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we weren't to have another election before we got anywhere near a referendum, but we'll see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was going to save that to last, actually. Uh, Turn to the Tories. I mean, there are three things that that concern me about the Tory manifesto, I suppose. Well, one thing that doesn't concern me is I think... I would say that if the Conservatives come back with a majority of one they will get Brexit done by the end of January because I'm pretty certain that no Conservative MP returned in this election will vote against any Brexit motion in the House of Commons until we've left. So I think they only need a very, very small majority to get us over that line. Then, going back to one of the things I said earlier, if you imagine a Tory party in Parliament that involves not just traditional Tory MPs, but you know, a Tory MP for, I can hardly say this out loud, a Tory MP for Wakefield, for Bolsover, for West Bromwich, for Walsall, all those people, once they've been elected, and got over the sort of warm glow, will be thinking, hang on a sec, the Prime Minister's plan for Brexit is to make our economic relationship with the European Union so thin that a significant number of my constituents might lose their jobs before I'm up for re-election. Those pressures will be real inside the Parliamentary Conservative Party, I think, quite quickly. So, in a sense, the more successful Boris Johnson's electoral strategy is, the harder it will be to deliver the sort of Brexit he's been promising because he might face the threat of dissension in his own ranks. But the three things that worry me about what the Tories are offering is, firstly, as Bronwyn said, this notion that we can negotiate a trade deal by the end of next year. I don't think the EU is going to give us an easy ride. I think even if we say something simple like tariff-free on goods, the French will say, well, they might say fish, and the Spanish might phrase Gibraltar, but the French will also say level playing field because you're not having access to our market, you're too big, you're too close, you can't have that sort of deal without guarantees. Okay? Uh, secondly, bear in mind the politics of trade. trade free trade isn't very popular in, in Europe as a whole at the moment, politically speaking. Uh, look at the composition of the European Parliament. And this is the first ever trade negotiation whose sole intention is to make trade harder. Okay? And what that means is there are very few things you can sell at home as wins. And I suspect that politically getting this kind of deal over the line in the 27, not to mention Wallonia and the regional parliaments, where it might have to go, will be a struggle. So the second problem with the Tories is they say we are not going to extend transition which opens the real prospect that at the end of next year we face a World Trade Organization exit. Well, of course, you, know, you, might, you might quite rightly say, well, the Prime Minister has said things and done something different before, so maybe he'll do that again, maybe he will, but I think it will be difficult. Uh, it's there in black and white uh, in the manifesto. And the final thing, and I'll stop here about the, the Conservative manifesto that troubles me is, The Conservative Party is going for a far looser relationship with the European Union than even that that Mrs May was after, okay, which means that the economic implications and the necessary adjustments are going to be significantly greater than they would have been in the case of Mrs May's deal, yet nowhere in the manifesto is this recognised, and I would have preferred if, you, if you're committed to doing Brexit, be honest about it and say, we're doing Brexit and it's going to mean some issues for the economy. This is our plan to address them, rather than simply ignoring them and carrying on as normal as if everything would be fine, regardless of the Brexit outcome.
0: I think There's a lot of things that we might have preferred about a lot of things, but particularly about the last couple of years. Um, just putting you on the spot, because there's a, a question uh, from uh, online that does just that. What is harder to do? Negotiate the future relationship within a year or negotiate a new withdrawal agreement and hold a referendum within six months? <laughs> if you're just kind of... You know, on the implausibometer, you know, which, which, which one is kind of off the scale and which one is... Or are they, are they both...
3: Well, they're not... Neither's easy. <laughs> um. <laughs> The trade, I mean, remember, it's not just a trade deal. It depends on the scale of our ambitions. I mean, one striking omission from the Tory manifesto is any mention at all of security cooperation with the European Union. And let issues around military cooperation, around data sharing for police collaboration are incredibly important. If you want to do all of that and you want to do it well, you're not going to do it in a year. So negotiating... A good, broad, thorough relationship with our nearest and largest trading partner is not going to take a year. It's going to take longer.
0: So that's that's the most implausible, but the other one's pretty uh, hard a, to, hard to swallow race. as well. Um, I've been looking through... I have been paying attention, um, but I'm also looking through all the many, many questions, some of which came in before... Um, Uh, before we started talking, others are trying to prove that they are watching by noticing that Paul Johnson's wearing red socks. Um, (laughs) Is that a question? Paul Johnson always wears red socks. Well, there you go. Actually, they they make that comment as well. Um, (laughs) It's your mum. There's quite a few about what the impact's going to be, of all these policies, going to be on productivity, because that is something that many of us have, talked about indeed, wanted politicians to focus on over the last few years. And it struck me that there's a kind of broader thing about growth, you, know, you see, I see a lot of the investment banks and independent economists analysis of different economic scenarios after, after the election. And it's quite striking that they all, they can't really get around the fact that growth is, they ex- would expect the economy to be larger and growth to be faster under the Labour Party because they are inputting the fiscal policies, the stimulus of the next few years, they're also looking at, at the very least, their assumption is either that you might not have Brexit after a second referendum, or that you would have um, at least a softer form of Brexit. And, of course, you can see that that kind of goes against the grain because they also know that there are all these policies that they might imagine would be bad for growth, but traditionally we've we've found it quite hard to sort of model in short term forecasts, those kind of dynamic effects. So how do you think about the growth, imp- the relative growth impact of uh, the manifestos if some proportion of these policies are implemented?
1: Yeah, that's a very, I mean, in a sense that's the most important, or one of the most Should important be. questions, yeah. uh, but it's an incredibly hard one um, to answer. And there are big risks and uh, with, with, with both of the main parties. So if you, look at, um, if you look at the sort of, um, sort of take the Conservatives as the sort of baseline, as it were, and assume that they you know, achieve something like the kind of Brexit that they're, they're looking for, then most of the forecasts are for pretty miserable growth over the next five years, one and a half percent a year, um, something like that, which is, um, which is well down on what we would normally have expected over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, and you know, that's associated with a combination of the costs around Brexit and just a continuation of very poor productivity growth that we've seen for the last, uh, for the last decade. Um, so where, where, where does the kind of big set of issue things that labor might do come into that? Well, well one is, yes, if, if we got a certainty around a you know, either no Brexit or a significantly softer Brexit, that would push towards, Higher growth, but I think that certainty is really an important issue there. As Zanand as, as said, you know, a lot of problems getting there in any reasonable um, period. And suppose we do end up with you know, a, a referendum and uh, either a sort of uh, a vote in favour either of Remain or a very soft Brexit. Um, does that? Shut the question down. Does uncertainty go? Um, does Nigel Farage sort of, you know, go, you know, go and retire? And Boris Johnson say, "Well, that's fine. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll live with that." Uh, I, I doubt it. And so I think a lot of the uncertainty then remains. How you model that, I don't know. Um, second, uh, second sort of positive thing that you would certainly hope to see over the long run from the Labour manifesto is a significant increase in investment spending. These economic models straightforwardly. We'll run that through, there'll be a multiplier, and that will result in uh, more growth than if you hadn't had that um, investment. That growth um, probably dissipates um, over time.
0: I mean, there's significantly looser policy. I mean, there's yeah, a lot of spending. A, exactly, yeah.
1: so, uh, the, and then and the, the, the issue then is that you, you, you probably do get some uh, greater growth in the short run, uh, how does it work in the long run? And I think crucially on that investment spending, how well is it spent? And then I think the third point, Stephanie, which you made is these models cannot, or they're hopeless at their modelling you know, what's the impact of widespread nationalisation, high minimum wages, high corporate tax rates, um, what we haven't mentioned, the inclusive share fund, which is essentially taking 10% of private share capital into some combination of public ownership and a trust fund. Um, how, how, how that then impacts, and you might worry about all of those things on growth, and how you then set those against the other things. I mean, I don't think that there is a, there's an economic model in the world which will tell you uh, which way uh, the combination of those things, uh, the combination of those things will, will go. So I think you know we, we certainly have a risk under both of the main parties that some of the things that might be positive for growth are offset by some things that may. Be may be negative uh, for growth. So, you know, is that between it, kind of dealing with the fundamental underlying problems? Well, in one sense, as we've discussed, you know, what Labour has is a, just a different view of how the world works and should work, um, uh, which, you know, is at least designed um, to address some of these uh, problems. and would certainly increase equity, but whether it would increase um, efficiency, I think, is open to question. And the Conservatives, again, I mean, there's just not very much in there um, on the positive or negative side from Brexit or anything else in terms of how they think that could really drive productivity.
0: Well, although, as Bronwyn said, it is a massive economic policy sitting in the middle of the, the manifesto, but not the details, as Alan said, not actually discussed. I mean, there's a parallel in the sense that we don't know what the long-term consequences would be of the, the shift of labour policies, the micro-shift. But we also don't know how far some of those negative dynamic effects might kick in if we have a big reduction in
2: inward investment, for example. Yeah. And, and, and that's before the uncertainty to do with Scotland possibly breaking away. So you've got, you've got other things there. <laughs> but, but, but both of them do put... I mean, you've talked about uh, investment and um, really physical investment. Uh, well, well, the Conservatives, are, are, as you mentioned earlier on, committing quite a bit. But they both talked a lot about further education and technical skills. And I, I thought that was interesting. And that was positive uh, in this election. It's been drowned out by everything else that I thought was good for the country, without people talking about other ways of developing that, uh, which uh, is often neglected.
0: And actually, the, the Chancellor is someone who is particularly committed, uh, I think, has, has more of a feeling around yes. further education, yeah. which I think yeah. you were quite right, and technical education. And the, the subject that has been, uh, comes up most, I think, in these very ambitious questions that people have, is social care. Mm. And you mentioned it in passing, Bronwyn, um, that actually that was kind of a, a festering issue that was in danger of also becoming quite undemocratic. I'll give you a ver- there's variations on these questions. The main one is how can we build a cross party consensus on reforming social care? But another more basic question was just which party has the most, the best, I mean, the most sort of practical policies on social care in these manifestos? I mean,
3: I just want to say something on the cross-party thing, one of the things that increasingly concerns me about how we do politics in this country, I think, is one of the reasons why interest is is up in politics is we have this intense ideological polarisation at the moment, you know, the two parties are very, very different. But what that means, if you consider the raft of issues that confront us at the moment from the environment to social care to the health service to artificial intelligence and what it does to the workplace, they're all very long-term problems. And our system, to me, at the moment, looks almost uniquely incapable of doing anything that isn't five years or less. Uh, Because, of course, at the moment, we have two parties that are so viscerally hostile to each other that the first thing they'll say is, we'll come in, we'll undo what they did, and then we'll... And and that is something we need to start thinking about, whether the structure of our politics is properly adapted to the nature of the challenges we face, and I'm increasingly coming to the conclusion that no, it really isn't.
2: You can construct things like parliamentary commissions to try and... uh, You know, uh, work with a um, you know get a a cross-party consensus, but you can't get one if one isn't there. Though um, I think on this there probably is more agreement than the 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 heat of the election battle implies. Uh, You can create uh, technical bodies outside, um, uh, which hang on the ones uh, that you uh, just said people
0: have no trust in anymore. Yeah, no, 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 I, I, I,
2: I, I. (laughs) <laughs> they're, not a, they're not a great answer to these things, but they at least try and take the politics out of uh, some of these very heated questions. There aren't easy answers to these, these things, um, but when they, at least when they rise up the agenda, people do begin paying them more attention and there begins to be more um, acceptance that something has to, be, has to be said. There is a question, and I'm now actually, I'm so,
0: sorry to say, struggling to find it, but there, there are quite a lot of questions around housing, and in particular, uh, a question around whether or not the Labour Party's sort of approach of, of a, I think accelerated um, promises on uh, increased social housing, whether that could you know, be positive for economic growth but actually also make a meaningful contribution. Uh, how, how plausible is it that you could really get that kind of growth in housing numbers?
1: I think again, this is something that can clearly happen over a period of time. Um, moving to uh, 100,000 additional council homes very quickly, uh, you'd think would probably crowd out some, uh, some private building because you know, quite simply, we don't have the, the builders and the, uh, and the planning permission and all those sorts of things to do that very quickly. Clearly, actually, in the past, we have done this kind of level of, uh, of social housing building. But I think you know, one, one of the things that... Um, you know, there is a, there is a, there's a real underlying issue here about about housing which i think we need to think about a lot more than we have why do we have this housing problem um, at the moment it's actually not fundamentally an issue of supply i mean supply is important but it's a fun it's it's an issue of allocation these young people who are not owning their own houses are living in houses uh, and most of them are renting from their parents generation So, and why are they renting from their parents' generation? Because we have moved to a period of incredibly low interest rates, which put a lot of power in the hands of one generation, those who owned stuff a decade ago, and took power out of the hands of another generation, those who didn't own stuff um, a decade ago. So, in a sense, all of these other sort of proposals including substantial social house building, which there's a you know, significant case for, is almost a, a sticking plaster, or at least a sort of, you know, maybe it's one step towards recognising that we've changed, perhaps forever, our, uh, our model of, you know, people buying houses in their late 20s, early 30s, um, and, you know, and, 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 that, and the value of that rising over time, if interest rates stay low, permanently and i think that actually raises all sorts of questions for both you know, asset distribution the tax system and the kind of you know society we might have in 20 years compared with the world where we assumed that interest rates would be significant and positive and that actually resulted in a very different uh, distribution of power between those who were earning and those who had and those who had assets so i see this as kind of you know one part of a sort of you know, feeling in the dark towards uh, a response to what has actually been a much more fundamental economic social change than I think people have yet
2: r- recognised. Mm, yeah, if you talk to the life insurance industry, which takes a very, very long-term view and is not remotely interested in politics, they say um, uh, often things like, uh, look, this, this is a lot of this is caused since the financial crisis um, by low interest rates. It's going to pass through. It may be the great taboo since the last Conservative manifesto, but people are going to have to spend this on their old age care, as uh, uh, much, much as they may not want to, and it will all wash through. But they're taking the very long view, longer, <laughs> lo- lo- longer, longer that will uh, rightly be, be satisfactory to many of the people very angry about it at the moment. But is,
0: is that actually, but this broader, given um, how febrile the debate is around inequality and how, certainly how much of the Labour Party agenda is animated by mm. the um, reaction to, to inequality. Is it surprising, or even a missed opportunity, that there isn't more debate around asset taxation and wealth taxation in these manifestos? I mean, is that one thing that actually, if Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto said more about that, might have had a, sort of more of a hearing from economists and others,
1: well, I think. I, I mean, I think actually, I, mean, I did say that I think the the proposals for capital gains tax and dividend taxation in the Labour manifesto um, are, are are really quite substantive, and really, I mean, not least because you know. Some of them came from the IFS in the first place.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> uh, a- actually quite radically sensible ideas which would move in, 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 in that direction. But that's, on um, yes, so, so, although so, that,
0: even that doesn't quite count as, I mean, it's still, in a sense, income. I mean, it's, it's still... it's
1: So the capital gain, the, you know, at the moment we tax capital gains and to some extent dividends a lot less than we tax earnings and moving to a world in which they're taxed, more similarly um, and you know, and also give an allowance for a normal return, um, it takes you to a better kind of tax system. That said, I mean, as you say, I mean, there, you know, there's not, as far as I saw it in the Labour manifesto, <laughs> uh, a change to council tax which remains I think the only major tax we have which is deliberately regressive in the sense that you pay less as a fraction of the value of your house the more expensive the house and also massively out of date and that's clearly something that you would want to. Uh, change um, and uh, you know and, and 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 big big changes to the ownership of, of capital and so on, isn't there? But but actually, you know, the Labour manifesto, you know, for all of its um, you know the difficulties of uh, of implementing some of the tax changes in there, you know, I th- I think it would clearly you know, it would clearly be a sig- you, you, you'd end up with a tax system if you tried to do all of that, with all of the troubles associated with it, you, with something which is significantly more redistributive and more Incident on capital uh, than, 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 than the current one, but you know, but, but to some extent, in, you know, focusing too much on the corporate side, not enough on some of the
2: um, on some of the other uh, issues that you've raised. And, were they, and I agree with you; it does represent um, quite a shift. Though I uh, also agree with you that I'm surprised that there hasn't been more, particularly from Labour, explicitly on uh, asset taxes. But where it seems to me they get a bit stuck in public debate is what the impact on pensions is of these uh, Mm. taxes, say on dividends or on some of their their, uh, company Mm. taxes, um, and haven't thought that through um, in the way that um, uh, they could do with another stage of thinking on that, because that that is at the moment the retort they're struggling to deal with.
3: It does strike me that Labour is a little bit behind the curve when it comes to wealth inequality. Uh, though as a, as a political scientist, think, yeah, I'll Jeremy Corbyn would be surprised but no, no. to hear that. Well, no, but there, yeah, <laughs> you know, there still seems to be it's it's sort old-fashioned approach to inequality in some ways, given what the economic profession is talking about in terms of wealth. But as a political scientist, I will say well, the answer is fairly simple: is that you know, you've got to assume he wants to win an election, uh, and you know, doing something dramatic on to house owners is probably not the well, best indeed. tactic if yep. you if you you know yep. intend to win sufficient votes to do that.
0: There is an interesting, and you've mentioned about pensions, uh, Brummen. I mean, it, with the with the, the waspy commitment, uh, the spending that um, the Labour has uh, rather spontaneously de- decided to <laughs> commit to, to to help those women who feel that they were um, uh, had money taken away from them. Um, I don't know, Paul, I mean, you've had many years of complaining about the triple lock and saying how unreasonable it was, you know, and that's been lodged into government policy for quite some time, it's still in the Tory manifesto. Um, how would you compare, I mean, do you think the, the Waspy pledge kind of uh, is a, an equally uh, unreasonable um, bid for the votes of older voters, or uh, would you still say the triple lock overall is a worse, uh, is a worse bit of policy? We seem to be in a terrible competition now for the it's, worst as it? opposed to the
1: best. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, 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 so for those who don't know, WASPy stands for Women Against State Pension Inequality, which is in a sense odd because this is all about bringing state pension ages to an equal uh, level between uh, men and women. But the, and the, the the issue is that the legislation from the early 1990s um, set uh, female state pension age to rise gradually between 2010 and 2020 to equalise with male at what was then 65, and then with rather less notice moved up to 66. And, and, and the issue is that first for some, first we know that a large number of women in that birth cohort born in the 1950s simply didn't know that because the government did very little to publicise uh, it. What Labour is proposing is that essentially there's close to on average full compensation, so people will be almost treated as if their pension age... Um, hadn't risen over that period. That's not that's not an exact description of what they're doing, but there's significant um, uh, so compensation for, for that group, coming to a pretty whopping £58 billion uh, pounds, um, which over a parliament is far more, for example, than Labour is uh, proposing uh, to pay to the much, much bigger and much, much poorer group of working age people who have had benefit cuts um, under the over the last over the last Parliament, so it really is a, a transfer to what is actually on average, and I stress on average, a relatively well-off part of the population who in principle um, had 15 years of notice of this change in their pension age. And I guess the thing that worries me most about this is if, if you can't, if you feel you have to you know, close to fully compensate for something like that, then you know it's really hard to think of that policy which you could put in place, which would make anyone ever worse off now uh, that, that, that overstates it because clearly you know that there, there, there was some hardship caused and there was not enough um state uh acknowledgement of the, of the need to let people know about that but it is it is a remarkable amount of money for a quite a small number of uh, relatively well-off people the, the other thing that i think is quite interesting in the labor manifesto as i mentioned in passing is that um, they have committed to um keeping the state pension age at 66 Sort of in perpetuity, uh, effectively going forward, which uh, you know, would change what is the current presumption that as it rises uh, to 67, 68, and eventually 69 over the next several uh, over the next several decades. Now that would clearly bake in uh, a much increased period um, of retirement on state pensions, which we've already uh, has already occurred over the last 30 or 40 years. Certainly uh, for men, as longevity has risen uh, very fast, and then increase. Um, going forward the fraction of life which is spent uh, on, uh, on state pensions and would add um, something like 25 billion a year uh, by the middle of this century to the state pension bill relative to a world in which you don't increase um, the state pension age. So I think I, I, it remains a concern as it were That, I mean, and, and then you add you, everyone's keeping the triple lock and Labour want to uh, restore free TV licenses to the over 75s and so on. And you do see a kind of pattern here, which is, well, not much for poor young people who are on benefits or, um, you know, have, have had very poor earnings increases or, or what have you. And a whole pile of goodies for, uh, for, the older, uh, for the older generation. And, you know, w- w- one understands the politics, but um, it's, uh, uh, I, I don't think it makes terribly, uh, terribly good reading from a sort of economic and social justice point of view.
0: Well, and that's in addition to Brexit, which is, of course, a very, uh, at least supported by a much bigger majority of older people than, uh, than uh, uh, Remain. Um, and there is a question going back to the economic implications of Brexit. Uh, there is a, a question here, and we haven't touched on it. I and mean, it's interesting, probably a couple of years ago, we would have talked about this more. But so, considering the focus on controlling borders from the Conservative election campaign, what will be the resulting cost to the economy of a limited workforce? I mean that is a whole that is a whole layer of implication of particularly this model of, of Brexit that is not being engaged with. Well, absolutely.
3: I mean, uh, I think immigration. Every, every single sensible study done this shows that if you're trying to cut immigration, it's going to have a negative impact on the economy. Uh, what is actually interesting in post-referendum Britain is the way in which public attitudes towards immigration have shifted quite dramatically. So. In the period since 2016, you've seen the salience of immigration as an issue collapse. I mean, it's gone back to levels we haven't seen since 2001, I don't think. I mean, can you remember, I mean, apart from 2017, which was the same phenomenon, an, an election in which immigration has really been talked about less. It's just not the same sort of issue as it was. And secondly, those people who've got a positive view of both the economic and cultural implications of immigration, those numbers are going up. So in a sense, there's there's a bit more space now. And I think what we see from all the manifestos is a more liberal approach to immigration than would have been possible under Theresa May. So in that sense, yes, the economic implications of clamping down on on, on immigration would be negative, but actually there's a degree of openness in the approach of the three parties that I think is a little bit new. Uh, and not and what you by predicted, having
0: seen the referendum campaign itself.
3: Well, unless you took seriously the idea of control, uh, and if you take literally the idea of control, then it's about we need to be able to do this ourselves. Not we need to be able to do it and keep them out. But we need, you know, ultimately there's something a bit odd about someone else telling us who we have to let into our country. And if you take that seriously, then actually it, it makes a degree of sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, another theme in the um, Questions is actually about, and going back to this question of the separating fact from fiction, uh, is sort of skepticism about whether the public investment can really happen on the scale that is an envisaged actually by both parties, although particularly Labour. Um, this is actually a global question now when you have so many governments talking about looser fiscal policies and particularly public investment as a response to a slower economy, because we've sort of maxed out, if you like, on monetary policy and low interest rates. So one of the questions, um, quite sort of irate, is where is HS2? Where is the Anglesey power station? Where are the new Clyde Ferries? Tax and spend plans are meaningless. Who will get things done? Bronwyn.
2: Um, I (laughs) I think the the Institute for Government, I think, might be able to get things done. We might, but... um, The notion of a white elephant is absolutely absent from these manifestos. The idea that you might spend public money and spend it badly, not something they touch on. Um, And There's there's just commitments to large amounts of infrastructure spending. Um, And uh, that's sort of dotted all over the the, the country, depending on where the parties most want to win seats. Um, It's very, very hard to spend money quickly and well. Um, And it's controversial. Um, Britain's problem has not been lack of finance. Um, It hasn't been lack of private finance, either. It's been lack of projects that have got political approval. This has been a case for years. Um, And HS2 is actually one very good example of just how controversial these can be uh, and how people argue rightly over what the return on them is going to be. and I don't think government studies have been particularly good at looking systematically at those those returns. Um, I mean, the party simply really commit to the large large amounts of money, but I think it is it is they're going to find it very very hard to find enough projects um, and, and get political approval for them, uh, whether in parliament or at the local level, to get these sums of money away.
0: Okay. Can I, can I ask Bronwyn a question? Is
2: sure. That, I mean, I say, uh, simply
3: because... <laughs> you you know, just have
0: to go online and you have to go on this... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in which case, I won't but,
3: uh Simply because you talked about the various challenges coming up, and it might be Scotland, we're going to be negotiating a Brexit, we're going to be dealing with things like having an agricultural policy, a fisheries policy, all this stuff that we're going to have to do. Yeah. Is there capacity in uh, Whitehall to do these things and all this ambitious stuff that's being piled on top?
2: No. <laughs> uh, there's, there's capacity to do kind of Brexit and keeping stuff running, or a whole load of new stuff. very, very hard to do both, and particularly very hard to do Brexit and loads of new stuff at the, at the moment, because they take thinking out as well as execution. And the civil services had to be doing, not only preparing for Brexit, and running really parallel visions of the future at the same time, but then switching on and off no-deal planning almost by the month um, in a really quite exhausting way. Um, and the civil service did have a lot of cuts after 2010, uh, and then has put on about 12,000 people, uh, sort of a bit more than a tenth of what, of what was taken out. But um, it's, it's almost more time and decision-making time and a question of priorities, and really to be trying to change the very fabric of the country and going through some kind of Brexit uh, is extraordinarily hard uh, for the civil service, and that's even before you get to Parliament and scrutiny of of legislation, and complicated legislation. So I think there is just not uh, an acknowledgement in either of these manifestos, though particularly, well, in Labour about the other stuff, and in the Conservative about Brexit, of the kind of Brexit they're envisaging, uh, just what that takes um, in terms of delivery Um, and that's before you get to things that they both want local government to do, but Labour in particular wants local government to do an awful lot of things, like take on more scrutiny of of education, and that capacity has largely gone from local government. Um, uh, And it can't just simply be wished back uh, with with an election victory. So, um, no, is the quick answer. It It doesn't mean it can't do nothing, but priorities really matter. And we spend a lot of private work with ministers, of uh, whatever party, um, uh, on, on how to be a minister. And it's a job that comes at people like no other. They may have been doing something completely different before. And then suddenly this, they, they get the great promotion from Downing Street. They have to work out where the department is go find it. Uh, and, then, and then try and set up a private office in, and start doing things. And everyone knows that they're supposed to have three priorities, but it's funny how often that turns out to be ten, um, <laughs> because that's what comes out of the manifesto. And I think the prioritisation... Uh, it sounds prissy and sort of school mistress-y. Actually, it's, it's sort of um, essential uh, and incredibly hard and has to be thrashed out with the party leadership as well because there the, the just isn't the capacity to do all this.
0: There's a question which actually well, it kind of goes on from that but it that more in the, the Brexit direction, which is how realistic is the PM's approach for Singapore on Thames with corporate tax remaining at 19% and an industry calling for close alignment with EU standards. I mean, there is a, when we talk about the battle of ideas, of course, there are some on the Brexit side who would say this is only the start, because in a few years' time, if one's going to get the best out of Brexit, one actually does have to pursue quite a radical deregulation agenda, which is Not, well, it's certainly not in the Brexit Party manifesto, and it's not because they don't have one, and it uh, isn't in the Conservative Party manifesto either. But is that something that's just gone away, this idea of Singapore on Thames? I don't think it's gone away. I
3: mean, you know, you take the work of Patrick Minford, who's one of the Brexit supporting economists, and I mean, give Patrick his due. There's a degree of honesty to his work in the sense that he says, we will do this, we'll get rid of manufacturing, and then we'll be reborn, okay? now, you can quibble about that. That is one want, reason why uh, the Brexit
0: party doesn't have a manifesto. But,
3: <laughs> but, but I'll take you back to the, the Leave coalition I spoke about earlier. You know, does the Tory MP for Walsall buy into that vision? Well, it depends whether the Tory MP for Walsall wants to be re-elected or not, I suppose. But if they do, then that might be problematic. So that, one of the problems is that you have competing, not to say contradictory, visions among... Leave supporters, uh, some of whom see us as being very open and buccaneering and trading, others of whom voted Brexit precisely because they're not a great. They're not great fans of that sort of openness. Uh, and you know, the big question, I suppose, is the degree to which that battle plays out on the benches of the Conservative Party in Parliament after the election. Because if it does, actually, we might see. Plenty more parliamentary drama in the months to come. And, and what
2: happens, supposing Labour t- were to lose? What happens? I mean, what happens within both main parties <coughs> after the election in terms of their, their composition and their, their sense of their own identity? I think is incredibly interesting. It's worth saying. I think, I mean, this may not solve. No, no that, think, that, that, that you know that in, that entirely. And I think, in a way,
3: I mean, I know I'm not saying anything that's cheering anyone up, but it almost this. If you imagine that this election returned exactly the same numbers, okay. Uh, it, would, it would be a parliament that found it harder to deal with Brexit than the last one because it would be more polarised. Because the Conservative Party has lost those uh, MPs who were thrown out, so it's more Brexit And actually, quite a number of Labour Leave MPs are leaving, and the Labour Party will become more remaining. So actually, the polarisation within parliament will be greater.
0: That's actually a good point. I wonder <clears throat> um, the you. perception on the outside, no, but I'm just because the perception on the outside is that there's been more of a shift. A loss of mainstream centrist conservative MPs, and that by and large, the sort of by and large, with some exceptions, the, the centrist, certainly not not necessarily Corbyn supporting, Labour MPs have stuck it out. Is that a misperception? I mean, would you say there's been an equal number of? Um, exits.
3: Well, quite a few of them are knocking on doors to the Lib Dems in this election.
0: <laughs> well, Some of them are, but I'm just interested in what the, or maybe, Bronwyn, you know, just the composition of the parties, the, the parliamentary parties.
2: It's a slight misconception. Uh, this is a really unusual amount of turnover. There's always quite a lot of turnover, mm. but it's some, some bigger names. Um, and I think it's also the question whether this, yes, at the moment we've got more of a polarised feel, particularly on the Conservative side, uh, more of a uh, a party that supports Brexit in, uh, in Boris Johnson's um, mould. But uh, there's a real question, um, as Alan was saying earlier, of whether, whether these new affiliations stick and whether the seats stick with them, whether some seats that may go conservative this time in the Midlands and North uh, stick that way, or whether people feel that they're still Labour, for example, but they're voting conservative this time to get Brexit done and then they revert. Mm. We won't know all that. Um, really, for some time, and so I don't think, for example, if the Conservatives do do make all the gains that they've been hoping, um, that they can bank all those as a done deal forever, those people are now theirs, it's very much to play for in exactly the way we're describing in in, in future elections. So I think we we, we still end up with really quite a febrile um, political makeup of of, of Parliament. Um, The Lib Dems, of course, are the only ones suggesting a change in in the voting system. Uh, to something other than first-past-the-post. But um, I think that while neither main party is going to suggest that, it, to me, is one of the questions that is very much in play because of all this, because the voting system is pushing people. We can hear this in the pollsters and in the uh, anecdotes from the doorstep. It's pushing people uh, towards one or the other of the main parties, saying anything else is a vote wasted. People are treating it as a very binary election. But that isn't really where the country... Is. This is a big, complicated country with people with a lot of different views. And I, I don't know, I would be surprised if we don't re-examine that sometime in the coming years. But if there's another clear majority, it's not going to be in the near future.
0: Hmm. Um,
2: there's quite a few questions around climate
0: change and environmental policies. I mean, it is one of those things. Of the many things that we could have been focused on as a country the last few years, that's certainly one of them. You know, that they, We might look back and say... This was a time in which the world, in a sense, grappled with the urgency of the climate crisis in a way that it hadn't previously, albeit rather late. Um, and that there was a meaningful, we're certainly seeing it in Europe now, quite a meaningful move um, in the direction of whatever it might be, Green New Deal or sort of fundamentally different approaches. Um, is that? Is it a sort of missed moment? You know, should there have, should there be more fundamental things on the environment, a more, a more fundamental kind of regearing of policy, um, built into these manifestos? I mean, obviously there is. You know, the Lib Dems have, and the Green Party has been quite uh, vociferous in the campaign. But is that? Is it a big omission? Well, there's, a fa- there's a fair bit
1: there. Um, there's not always an enormous amount of, of, of detail, uh, but you know, the, a large part, a very large part of Labour's suggested investment programme is precisely for um, green energy and insulation and all those kinds of things. Conservatives don't have much in the way of proposals, but they are, I think, genuinely signed up to the 2050 um, net zero, but there's a real challenge there about actually making it happen. But I think, I think two bits of context are really important here. The first is um, that actually, you know, as a country, we've done quite a lot over the last 30 years. I, something like 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions since 1990, and some of that's because we've exported it and we're importing stuff. Uh, but a lot of it's because you know, we stopped burning coal and we've, um, and, and we've got a large fraction of our electricity coming from green sources. Um, so so there's a, there is a genuinely, a partly good story to tell, but I think even where the parties are saying, we'll do a whole load of stuff going forward, and we will need to do a lot to get to net zero, I don't think they're being terribly honest about the fact that this will really start to affect people. Mm. So up till now, you know, we've, most of this has happened through electricity, and the electricity that comes out your plug is exactly the same electricity as it always was, it's just been produced in a different way. Um, But if we're going to get to net zero, we're going to have to have electric cars. I mean, all new cars by the early 2030s will need to be electric. Well, we can probably cope with that, but then you need the whole electric um, charging infrastructure. Um, We're going to have to get rid of all of our gas central heating. We're either going to have to replace it with hydrogen central heating, which will require massive amounts of electricity to produce the hydrogen, or we'll have to have heat pumps, which is is actually quite disruptive in, in in housing, and you know, getting solid insulation, it can be quite um, disruptive. Um, we're, the, the, the Climate Change Committee, on which I'm a member, is also looking at you know, lifestyle changes, transport changes, changes in the way that uh, the, land, uh, the land is used, uh, making, you, know, you, you probably have to make flying more expensive as the Lib Dems are, um, are proposing. All of these things are the sorts of things that you have to do if we're going to get to net zero, all of the parties are committed to net zero and some of them have talked about big investment, but none of them have really talked, I think, about the behavioral change and the impact, the real impact it will have on our lives, which we have to do if we're going to going to achieve that. So in a way, there is this remarkable consensus about net zero I and mean, there is a silly, in my view, debates about you know what exactly is the right year. That's not the point. If we get there by 2050, we'll have done brilliantly and we will have spent hundreds of billions doing it, and we will have disrupted people's lives, and it's that bit um, that we're not having a proper I mean, proper not, debate there about. There
2: is not a plan at the moment for how to, how to, how to get there. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I find myself distracted by your idea of different kinds of electricity coming out of the plug, though. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are sitting in the Faraday Theatre. <laughs> the, the, the IFS reinvents electricity.
0: Oh, rediscovers. Oh, anyway. <laughs> there is a lot, though. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, we've had this conversation about uh, fiscal stimulus and people, and also the challenges of ramping up public investment. Um, of course, you know, there is a lot, there's a big prize waiting, and you can see European politicians looking for it um, to, for the environmentalist stimulatory public investment, which is also, by the way, going to be progressive. Because, of course, that's also a, a question mark. You know, when you've just as France attempted to do, just increase the price of petrol, uh, you can have quite um, inequitable regressive effects. So is this one area, when you talk about giving people money to insulate their homes or to help them in some kind of transition to more energy efficiency, is that an area where plausibly you could ramp up spending quite a lot and it could be quite stimulative and progressive?
1: You you, you can do it, and actually investment in insulation and so on has dropped off a lot over the last decade because of changes in the way that that's uh, that's funded. Now, what isn't progressive and what's difficult is increasing the price that you pay for um, for energy, uh, which would happen under a sort of more serious carbon tax. Although one of the hidden things that has happened is that the price per unit electricity has risen as a result of green uh, policies reasonably significantly over the last... Um, decade, but actually um, uh, efficiency has increased quite a lot, so that average bills haven't gone up uh, in the same way. But but because that you know that price is impacted on the electricity cost, there's nothing on gas. There's no carbon tax on gas. There's no um, indeed there's no there's a very low rate of VAT um, on on energy. So the consumer in that sense has been protected. Uh, one of the uh, you know, very soon after the Conservative Manifesto came out, the Prime Minister said, oh, and you know, by the way, of course, we're not gonna increase uh, petrol duties, um, uh, which have been frozen, uh, haven't gone up in line with um, even prices for the last decade. Uh, you know, if you're, taking, if you're taking seriously a sort of, uh, you know, a, a green economy, you know, the last thing you should be doing is cutting um, in real terms, tax on, on, on petrol and diesel, which we have done to a remarkably high degree over the last decade. But as you say, the, um, the French experience explains very clearly why, uh, why that's happened. It is, a, it is, a, it is very, um, very unpopular. So again, you need to be doing these things in pretty careful ways. And the truth is that in terms of electricity prices, you know, there's been big investment. It has gone into people's bills. But it's very untransparent, so people haven't noticed it. I mean, they've noticed their bills, but they haven't—they don't they know. I think that you know that they would would be lower had that investment not occurred.
0: There's a couple more which kind of go to um, you know more fundamental things about uh, our institutions and whether they're at risk. We're going to run out of time, but I'm going to I'm going to ask. I guess Bronwyn first, but actually all of you. Um, a couple of people have asked. They say, "Are our institutions of state, civil service, judiciary, etc., strong enough to withstand the assault from politicians?" And what can people do to help? I mean, another version of this, in a sense, is, which is more specific to Whitehall, is, is the concept of an impartial civil service likely to survive this election and the post-truth era? Um,
2: I think it will survive. It will survive this election. Uh, Um, but there's no question that these partisan times have made it, have put some strain on it. Um, Greatest strain during the uh, Theresa May period when there wasn't a clear political direction and the Civil Service was having to describe the future or the course of Brexit, if you like, uh, knowing that whatever they described, however neutrally, it was going to intensely displease one side or the other, Um, whether that's the Treasury or... Or others. Um, you do hear uh, increasingly sort of suspicion uh, from uh, politicians of whether the civil service would really do what they want when getting in. I think that's unfair. Uh, civil services has performed I mean extraordinary changes of course at, at different governments request um, repeatedly over the, the decades we've been discussing. Um, Although that suspicion
0: is a very old one. I mean, one which also also had it in the 60s and the 80s. Yeah.
2: Um, I think think it's it's, uh, unfair as well over all that (laughs) period. Um, um, Civil servants really go to great lengths to try to do what governments want. In fact, I think you could say that, yes, minister is accurate in every respect except the central one. Um, <laughs> uh, and that civil servants, much more often, um, try very, very hard to make a minister's possibly unworkable ideas work, um, than actually say no, minister, um, and, and, and you know, for, for good reasons. So I, I, I have some confidence in that. What was the other, the, the judiciary and so on? Well, the judiciary have shown. Um, uh, certainly the Supreme Court that they can uh, wade in and indeed define their role as having a say on the Constitution uh, in a way that, um, uh, that, 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 that so they had some, some bite um, but there's a flicker in, in what uh, Boris Johnson and his colleagues have said about well, trying to uh, draw the lines more clearly around that um, these things are in, are in play I don't think um, uh, and, and they are moving and being defined. And a degree of that is healthy, but there is a degree of that also, that it can be very destabilizing. And I think uh, we can get in a very dangerous place if um, we have to settle too many of these demarcations of power too quickly. Um, they can get thrashed out, they can get you know, attention paid to them, and then people find their way to work their way through. But you, when you're having to improvise, uh, solutions or arbitrate solutions very quickly on these things you get you know the, the British Constitution essentially being changed and um, refashioned very very fast in a way that I think is not healthy for the country um, so we have to hope for uh, something not quite as bitter as we're seeing and and, and, and how does it post truth and public skepticism uh, feed into all this um, not um, all of this together is quite a toxic Brew that a lot of our conventions and institutions rely on a degree of, of, of public trust and, and everyone's trust in, in them working. And um, great kind of fire hoses of, of, of skepticism turned on these things are not, um, are not healthy. Um, so I, again, I think they're the same place, but uh, you know, are, are, do we, are they going to hold up for the moment? Yes.
3: I'd say several things. I mean, firstly, actually, levels of public trust are quite reassuring. Uh, I remember looking at the time of the Supreme Court judgment at the figures on trust in the judiciary, and it was up, I think, near 80% or something. There are obviously challenges to our institutions. Uh, There's the challenge of a sort of thinly disguised ambition among some around the prime minister to politicize the civil service. Uh, There's the horrible way in which individual civil servants were singled out and named by politicians that I thought was shameful. There is the fact that, you know, at least, and I say at least because I think it's more, but just to be polite, let's say at least three of the parties in this election are running on what you could call populist platforms. So we have a prime minister running on a platform of the people versus the parliament that failed them. You have a Labour Party running on the platform of us versus the establishment that rips you off, and you have Nigel Farage. Uh, And, you know, that is a danger to our institutions in the sense that, you know, this sort of populism isn't all that healthy, but. I still, I'm still one of those people that thinks we're in the middle of what is a political rather than a constitutional crisis as yet, and I think this gets resolved when we get a majority government. Uh, I think we've almost forgotten what majority government looks like. Majority government will be weird, won't it, because, you know, there won't be people shouting at College Green, and no one will really care what the opposition thinks anymore, because all of a sudden, you know... <laughs> It will be that old system. And I actually think having that system, and having a system where you don't have a cabinet that the civil service doesn't know if it can give all the people the same information because some of them want different information, which is what you had under Theresa May, I think, I think actually the politics can sort this out in the short to medium term. Uh, and I, I'm not a fan of the idea of moving straight to things like a written constitution or things like that, I have to say, for a number of reasons.
0: Well, then I won't raise the question about do we need a constitution? Well, I know. say no. <laughs> um, There is, a, it's interesting, you, very interesting you say that about uh, a majority government and what it could do because one of the other questions that was more fundamental was whether Britain's concept of liberal democracy could survive either Labour or Conservatives winning an overall majority in the next election. Sounds like you think it could actually be a step in the right direction. But Paul, if you have a majority, when one thinks about, when you talk about the implausibility of some of the of the promises on the uh, Labour side, but also the lack of clarity uh, on the Conservative side around the implications of some of about Brexit and other things, um, there are many people in this country who are trying to vote for a hung Parliament, even though the system makes it very difficult. Um, without putting you too much on the spot, um, Do you, th- or all of you actually, do you fundamentally think we would be in a better or worse place if with another round of hung parliament, or whatever the outcome, we'd be better with a majority parliament? I think that's not actually asking you to choose either side. It's about, choo- <laughs> it's about choosing a, um, whether you want clarity or something in the middle.
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, going back to what I was saying earlier, and one thing that a you know, majority on either side would tell us, which I think we just don't know at the moment, is what actually are their priorities? Um, so, you know, I think you know, it, it is implausible that the Labour could implement its manifesto in a parliament. It is not implausible that it could put us on a path towards implementing it over two or three parliaments and make big changes within one. Um, but we don't know how they would do it, what they would do first, what they would prioritise, or any of those things. So what the world would look like in five years' time <laughs> under that world, we don't know. And equally, uh, we don't know what a Tory majority would do because their manifesto says so remarkably little. So, I mean, a, a, at least a majority would, um, would would tell us what one side actually wanted, presumably, <laughs> um, and what its, uh, what its actual priorities were. Either, either one winning a majority would clearly you know, if, if Labour won a majority, we'd be a very different country in five years' time to the country we would be if the Conservatives um, won a majority. But I think it also asks the question about what, what is then the impact on the next election? And going back to what Anand was saying, I mean, if the Conservatives win a majority by winning a bunch of these seats in the Midlands um, and the North, um, and the economy doesn't look too hot in five years' time because of a particularly hard Brexit or, or what have you, you can imagine that we swing one way this time and then swing very dramatically the other way next time. And the same may also be true of, 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 of Labour towards, um, towards Conservatives. So I suppose one of the risks, as it were, of majority on either side is that you get lots of change, which we don't know which direction it will be in exactly, or where it will be this time, and then the next parliament just undoes it all again because of this kind of uh, because of this polarisation in where uh, in where the parties are. So I think the you know the uh, going back to what Bromley was saying, our electoral system, and you know, in a sense the within-party democracy, which I think is actually kind of you know driving this polarisation yeah. within yeah. the electoral system that we have. I mean, you could imagine bigger swings, parliament to parliament, if we get majorities at each in each case, which itself could be, I suppose, destabilised.
2: Although the system doesn't work very well without majority government, and Parliament, all kinds of conventions about Parliament don't work very well, I'm not sure that British people will feel that, if we do have this swinging around, that they are very well represented by these majorities getting in alternately. And Brexit has proved a very you know, good case of that, of the narrow, losing minority, not feeling that their views are represented, and possibly some of those who voted Um, Leave not feeling that Boris Johnson's version of Leave represents them either. And I think going to your question, Stephanie, about is our version of liberal democracy going to hold up? Um, I'm not sure, without a change in the voting system, that people are going to feel represented by this in the way that they would like to. And is that potentially accelerated by having having another unclear result? I think it's happening anyway. I think both a majority that charges for something that, much of the country doesn't want, or a hung parliament that just makes everyone feel oh, we can't stand any more of this, <laughs> um, uh, can, can, can do it. But a hung parliament would at least force the question of whether a change in the voting system was necessary.
0: I mean, I'm going we'll, okay, uh, to. Because it's that is such a nice, clear ending, and we have run out of time, um, I will uh, leave it there. We have had clarity, we've had rigour. We have, even if you looked very carefully, had crumbs of optimism here and there. Whether whether I come away with a reason to have a spring in my step as I approach the polling station in a little over a week's time, I'm not sure. Um, But thank you very much to the truth tellers, Paul Johnson, Bronwyn Maddox, and Anna Menon.